Regret by Roy Hargrove, y'all. And before that, it was actually a Heart of Glass cover by The Bad Plus. My name's Andrea Sass and Brass. Sweet Jesus, sometimes just songs sound better live uh, without any questions involved. Um, but yeah, does anyone ever feel weird? You know, like like they're feeling all the feels, they're listening to the music, they're getting it real, and someone tells them, hey, 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 you're, perhaps you're feeling a little bit too much. Uh, perhaps, you know, you should calm down. Maybe you should just chill the fuck out. Well, that's me. That's be, been me this month. I'm a little loca. Here we go. I mean, I'm half Latina. I don't know what to do. I'm crazy. So are you. Um, my name's Andrea, like I said, and this is my diagnosis. school board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school system. Oh, Mr. Kirk, I'm as upset as you to learn Dexter's truancy, but surely expulsion is not the answer. I'm afraid expulsion is the only answer. It's the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. Same, same, same. <laughs> That boy needs therapy. Lie down on the couch. What does that mean? You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm gonna kill you. That boy needs therapy. Granny Gazoo, let's have it to you. How about I count three? That 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 that, that boy, boy needs therapy. He was white as a sheep. And he also made false teeth. <laughs> Thank you. 
promised my girlfriend I could the violin, violin, violin. Bit. 
pretty much every loser's anthem out there, um, mine included. Uh, that was Born Ruffians, I Need a Light Life, off of their album Red, Yellow, and Blue. Um, so it's come to my attention that this band actually performed, not this band, not Born Ruffians, excuse me, but another band, um, called garlic man and chicken they performed at they performed in oakland at a warehouse party and i went a little too hard thursday night and couldn't make it to friday's occasion i'm bummed out because these ladies sound a lot like the satisfaction amongst others and i guess they bring an a, a terribly just tight 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 professional act if you can get a chance explore them they're seattle based um but there's a lot of lovely music com- coming from from Seattle these days. I'm going to play you a song DTF and it's about ladies loving ladies. So if you're a lady and you love ladies, here it's all about.
tempting, teasing. F is for frontin', girl, that's not what I'm about. I'm DTF and proud. If you isn't, say it loud. I can take off yours and you can take off mine. I'm like, oh, my friggin' shit. You are seriously fine. After this, you'll go do yours and I'll go and do mine. This might be our only shot and I hope you cross the line. You are the shit and I'm so into it. You came in quick and you made the game switch. Now come here, baby boo. Yeah, I'm so into you. There's so much we can do. Thank you.
So, recently I've been watching this documentary series on the 1960s in American culture and how it's affected us ever so deeply. Um, and in the current day era, you know, people don't trust our government. We don't trust authorities. Um, if it comes from a politician, it's usually crooked and driven by money. Um, that's the initial thought. It's hard to trust the government. That's why people want so little of it or more socialized and like democratic processes. But something that actually struck me of interest was the fact that um, the first episode of the 60s, it's just called the 60s documentary series, was uh, it covered, excuse me, the, the documentary covered the assassination of John F. Kennedy um, and the politics involved and how America was absolutely shocked, A, by this, two, by Lee Harvey Oswald, and three, by the man who shot Lee Harvey Oswald as he was on his way to court. So Lee Harvey Oswald actually like never, you know, was tried. We don't know if it was him. We don't, you know, there's a lot of evidence pointing to him saying that he was the sniper in the video. He was a, he was an ex-Marine. Um, he actually worked in that building at the, uh, publishing company in which, you know, uh, in which the vid, excuse me, in which the window was. Um, but for so many reasons, um, Lee Harvey Oswald was never tried. Um, and the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald was a club owner in, in Texas, in Dallas, Texas. Um, but um, he was very closely linked. There's a lot of people who think that this man was very closely linked to the CIA and that, you know, how out of anyone could he have gotten so very close uh, to, to Lee Harvey Oswald at that time? Um, and America was like, they wanted answers. They wanted to know who killed JFK. There's all of this conflicting evidence. There are a lot of people out there who said that they knew who did it. Um, and this documentary series, long story short, um, stated that the assassination of John F. Kennedy was the first time in America where Americans, A, were shocked, and B, started to lose their trust in authority and in government and in the way that things were run. And it's really interesting because if it weren't for JFK's assassination, it makes me really wonder how much trust we'd still have or the turning point of things. Like, would this song have come out? <laughs> how would America have gone? Um, if JFK were never assassinated, would we still be blindly following? No, of course we wouldn't. You know, that was so long ago. Um, politics are corrupt and so are people. Um, but it's just something to really think about. Um, my name is Andrea. We're coming up through the second hour of this show. Um, it's been marvelous. You were just listening to Jefferson Airplane, and so was I. Um, but, you know, let's bring it back a little bit. Let's bring it to the forward tense. Um, this song is called Queens, and it's by The Satisfaction.
face at the door Turn off your swag And check your bag From your limbs to your timbs Get down But whatever you do Jack. Thing ain't lie. 
Every thing that's fly, I'm like, take a barrel with bling on. I'm complex. I never claim to have wings on. Nigga, I get my by any means on. Whenever there's a drought, get your umbrellas out because that's when I brainstorm. You can blame Sean, but I ain't inventing the game. I just rolled the dice trying to get some change. And I do it twice, ain't no sense to me. Lying as if I am a different man. And I can blame my environment, but ain't no reason why I be buying expensive change. Hope you don't think users are the only abusers. Niggas getting high within the game. If you do, then how would you explain? I'm 10 years removed, still the vibe is in my veins. I got a hustler spirit, nigga, period. Check out my hat, yo, peep the way I wear. Check out my swag, yo, I walk like a ball player. No matter where you go, you are what you are, player. And you can try to change, but that's just the top player. Man, you was who you was before you got here. Pony God can judge me, so I'm gone. Either love me or leave me alone.
just had the balls to do it. And no, I'm not through with it. In fact, I'm just previewing it. This ain't the show, I'm just EQing it. One, two, when I won't stop abusing it. To groupy girls, stop false accusing it. Back to the music, the main back group is translucent. Niggas got a problem, Houston. What up, me? They can't shut up, me. Shut down, I even P.E., I'm a ride. God forgive me for my rash delivery. But I remember vividly what these streets did to me. So picture me, let these clowns nitpick at me. Paint me like a picnic. I would literally kiss T.T. in the forehead. Tell him, please forgive me to squeeze into your forehead. I'm not the one that scored points off the track. I got a joint to knock your points off. Young, hope of the guard, nigga, blasphemy. I'm at the Trump International, ask for me. I ain't never scared. I'm everywhere, you ain't never there. Nigga, why would I ever care? Pound for pound, I'm the best to ever come around here. Excluding nobody, look what I embody. The soul of a hustler, I really ran the street. A CEO's mind, that marketing plan with me. You know I ain't get shot up a whole bunch of times. I'll make up shit in a whole bunch of lines. And I ain't animated like, say, a Buster Rhyme. But the real shit you get when you bust down my lines. Add that to the fact I went plat a bunch of times. Times that my mind fluids on pop culture. I'm supposed to be number one on everybody list. We'll see what happens when I no longer exist. Fuck. What more can I say?
so that song was uh, also frightened by Animal Collective. I'm kind of frightened what I was into in college. Maybe I should have put the bong down a little more frequently, but there you have it, folks. Animal Collective. We're almost done here. Um, I know this song is about like looking back. This show is about looking back and understanding what you have or what you had or what you lost or what you gained as a result of all the three combined. Um, it's been such a fucking pleasure. More like an emotional journey. Except if you're on mushrooms, or excuse me, if I'm the one that's on mushrooms, I hope that you're able to connect with me because I feel like I'm connecting with you all. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to stop trying to seduce a microphone as much and play the next fucking track. This song is off the Pot of Gold Remixes album by Alice, Alice Russell. Not, no, 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 no. Not this song. Not this song. This song is off the Pot of Gold Remixes by Alice Russell, y'all. It's called Let Us Be Lovin'.
that was a cover no 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 I'm fucking sick of this man let's just listen to some gay pop like fuck I thought I could get all deep and emotional with the Beatles I thought it was gonna be great you know but let's just listen to some fucking gay Icelandic pop Off the ground 
a little bit of Icelandic gay pop just you know always makes me feel so much better my name's Andrea um, this has been my show it's been a fucking pleasure uh, per usual all requests were granted um, but as I mentioned previously today's show is on reflection and there's nothing like Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen by Baz Luhrmann. Um, if you haven't heard it by me, or you haven't, if you haven't heard me play it, um, you know, now's a great time to start listening because I listen to this song once every three months. Call me redundant. I don't give a shit. You should listen to it too. Um, it's been played here and there on Psycho Gutter too at Mutiny Radio. So if you get a chance, listen to her shit as well. But here we go. Here we go. Um, let's see Ladies where this flows. And of the class of 99. Wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now enjoy the power and beauty of your youth oh, never mind you will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they faded but trust me in 20 years you look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked you are not as fat as you imagine Don't worry about the future, or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind, the kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Do one thing every day that scares you. Sing. Don't be reckless with other people's hearts. Don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. Floss. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind. The race is long, and in the end, it's only with yourself. 
remember compliments you receive. Forget the insults. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Keep your old love letters. Throw away your old bank statements. Stretch. Don't feel guilty if you don't know what you want to do with your life. The most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your needs. You'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe you'll marry. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have children. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40. Maybe you'll dance the funky chicken on your 75th wedding anniversary. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much or berate yourself either. Your choices are half chance. So are everybody else's. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. Dance. Even if you have nowhere to do it but in your own living room. Read the directions, even if you don't follow them. Do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. Get to know your parents. You never know when they'll be gone for good. Be nice to your siblings. They're your best link to your past and the people most likely to stick with you in the future. that friends come and go but with a precious few you should hold on work hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle because the older you get the more you need the people you knew when you were young live in new york city once but leave before it makes you hard live in northern california once but leave before it makes you soft travel Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise, politicians will philander, you too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. Respect your elders. Don't expect anyone else to support you. Maybe you have a trust fund. Maybe you'll have a wealthy spouse. But you never know when either one might run out. Don't mess too much with your hair, or by the time you're 40, it will look 85. Be careful whose advice you buy, but be patient with those who supply it. Advice is a form of nostalgia. Dispensing it is a way of fishing the past from the disposal, wiping it off, painting over the ugly parts, and recycling it for more than it's worth. Trust me, on the sunscreen. Stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite. I'm gonna guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. What? <laughs>
actually Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? FM. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for me every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? 
Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship.
I got it in we. We got it in we to change reality. To change reality. That was uh, Sacred Red. That was um, Sea Star from the Big Island. Oh, so beautiful. She said that she got it in me to change reality, and I'll just say we got it within we to change reality. And that's what we're about here. That's right. Happy Friday. This is the Common Thread Collective here at MutinyRadio.fm. And I want to say Shabbat Shalom to everybody. Peace. I want to say Happy Fr- uh, Freya's Day. And uh, 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 people don't know I'm about to uh, I'm about to take off. Uh, uh, well, I'm about to go off on my on my on my North American tour. Yep. But you'll be holding it down. I will. I will, and you'll be our far out, far flung correspondent, every, calling in on Fridays. Every Friday, I'll call in with the phone in my hand. Yep. I'm talking about Missoula. Minneapolis, points in between, New York City, and then before we get off, off, uh, we'll have to look the, off, off the, the grid, off the grid, and the Rainbow Gathering, and the Green Mountains of Vermont, all of that, uh, and then afterwards, we're, we're uh, afterwards, I'm going down to uh, Philadelphia with Felipe, hopefully getting a caravan together, and, uh, and, uh, and feeding the people, and I'm calling it, this is the first time you're here on this station, I'm calling it Occupy Philly, Occupy Libby, during the Democratic Convention and inviting the Bernie delegates. Be sure to come on. Don't give up. Come on through. I hope Bernie will issue a human manifesto saying all your delegates, there's hundreds of de- Bernie delegates who have never done this before, were elected uh, outside of the political structure. He's not a Democrat. Remember, he's a Democratic Socialist. And I hope they come to town and we'd be occupying. And that's a dream I have. Well, may the dreams come true. Well, that's today, too. It's a question of saying a p- planet on the planet to a degree. Well, anyway, we got Ubi. We do have Ubi. We're going to play because uh, even when things get a little just out of hand, Ubi lets us know, don't worry so much. Everything's going to be, gonna be all, right. all right.
Thank you, Ubi, for letting us know everything is going to be all right. Thanks for listening to the Common Thread Collective here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. I'm here with Diamond Dave, and I'm here with James Zealous, who's our, our guest interviewer today, um, because we have a, a rather esteemed guest, an author and poet and scholar, uh, Mr. Peter Dale Scott. So, uh, James Zealous, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Global Val. Um, I say I'm very excited uh, to be here at the Common Thread Collective and to have uh, our guest, who will be in on a moment, and Mr. Peter Dale Scott. Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely here. I'm definitely in a good, good situation. Uh, James is going to be interviewing you in a bit later. I might have some questions to jump in and uh, jump in. It's good to hear your voice again. Hey, Peter. Yeah, I'm here. I'm good. looking forward to this. Well, we're doing it. The past shakes hands of the future to the now, right now. Take it away, James. Welcome to the Common Theater Collective, Mr. Scott. Uh, Welcome. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Very good. Um, your work was brought to my attention by our poet laureate of the United States Emeritus, Mr. Uh, Robert Hass, who uh, wrote an essay uh, uh, describing uh, uh, one of three books he wrote, a very unique trilogy, Seculum. Uh, the first of those three books is what Mr. Hass uh, wrote an, uh, an essay about and can be found in uh, What Light Can Do. And that was your book, Coming to Jakarta. I hope you could share with us today some thoughts on that trilogy. I understand you have some recent work, a, a book about the writing of the trilogy. Is that correct? Well, yes, well, that book is still in process. The, the poem, uh, Coming to Jakarta, it occupied me for a decade in the 1980s. I began, I was acutely depressed in 1980 for a number of reasons which come up in the poem, one of them being the election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and I wrote it very quickly, almost on impulse, in about six weeks, and then spent uh, eight years refining it and rewriting it. In the course of that time, um, Bob Hass, uh, he and I were both teaching at Cal at that time, and he gave it to a a version of it to his class to read, and uh, then I got some input from the class, and one of the people in the class actually helped me a lot. The occasion for the poem is the massacre in Indonesia in 1965, where still a lot of people in America are not very aware of the fact, I mean, all the devastation being done by ISIS now is is nothing, really, compared to, we don't know how many people were killed. A, a, a low estimate, the lowest estimate is about 250,000. The safe estimate is uh, half a million, but a lot of people believe it was more than a million, maybe even as much as two million. And, of course, nothing ISIS has done begins to compare to that. <clears throat> and the targets were, first of all, the, the, the Communist Party in Indonesia, which was the, the most westernized uh, party in Indonesia. And in a sense, uh, pro, people with Western ideas were the targets of this massacre. And in this case, uh, I believed and had written that the CIA was uh, helping out and British intelligence, MI6, were helping out. And this just made me feel terrible that uh, there was this massacre, it had happened, and nobody knew about it in America. And that's what uh, led to a kind of uh, 
I, I thought of it as a breakdown time. I think it was really more like some kind of panic attack. It, the, it, the, the attack lasted only 12 hours or so through a night when I couldn't sleep. But I began to write my way out of it, and uh, I did a lot of very rapid writing, not knowing where it was going. I didn't know it was going to be a poem about about Jakarta or about Indonesia until I'd written about 20 pages. Anyway, that's the book that caught Bob Hass's attention, other people's attention, too. It's my best-known poem, I think. And um, and uh, so, yes, he, at the time, he said it was the most important political poem to have been written in the English language for a very long time. So that made me feel better. I went from being very depressed to feeling much better that my depression had led to a product other people liked. As many authors write to heal, this is a poem of healing. It is germane to the conversation, I would I would argue, as we look at the security state, at the activities yes, of the NSA. I felt that it, it very much was a, a, a process of healing for me, uh, but I feel that uh, there's some kind of analogy to the way that uh, nations heal. This has been particularly difficult for Indonesia because what happened as a result of the massacre was the imposition of a political dictatorship, military dictatorship, um, and the man who came in in 1965 was there until he was ousted for corruption in 1998. And even for a decade after that, the military still ran the country, and you were not allowed to mention the massacre unless you called it the PKI Gestapo, in other words, blaming it on the PKI, which is the Communist Party. The Communist Party did not inaugurate this massacre. They were the victims of it, and they were blamed for it for the, uh, there was a coup attempt, which was, I think, a false flag attempt blamed on the communists. And uh, for, so until, I think, 19, 2007 or something, I think quite recently, you could go to jail if you didn't, if you mentioned the massacre and didn't blame it on the PKI. And they had a, a whole warehouse full of textbooks that were destroyed in 2007 because uh, they had failed to do the obligatory thing, blame it on the PKI. So uh, the country now is getting out of that, and there have been two movies by an American, Josh Oppenheimer, both of them nominated for an Oscar, by the way, long feature documentaries. First one, The Act of Killing. <clears throat> the second one, The Look of Silence. And because they were on the internet and the government could do nothing about it, Indonesia is now waking up, so to speak, beginning to talk about this thing, having conferences about it. They're going, I think, it's been decided by the government that they will have a, some kind of truth and conciliation, reconciliation process. So uh, you can, t there has been a great healing and art in the form of these two movies uh, played a big role in that act of healing. 
And if I could blow my own horn here, I got an unsolicited email from this Josh Oppenheimer, who I had never met or heard of until then, saying that he had been influenced by my poem and by my prose in making the movie. So there's, um, you know, that, that really makes me feel good that art can have a good social function. I, for uh, for 20 years, I thought I'd been totally useless and that my art wasn't affecting anything at all. But I have a better feeling about it now because of Josh Oppenheimer's movies. Uh, well, I'm just going to jump in with one question. I've been reading late, getting to what uh, two archipelagos, the Indonesia, where his massacres took place, and the Philippines. Now, yeah, as I know, in the Philippines, there's the been... Archipelago, one blends into the other. That's what I'm talking about. Before the coming of the, uh, the Dutch and the, the, the Dutch and the Spanish, they were blended perfectly. They were blended fine. But, uh, but now we have two archipelagos. That's one uh, through, uh, through just uh, political boundaries. One is the Philippines, where they did have those, those discussions, where there was not uh, the kind of massacre. In fact, discussions did take place between the Communist Party of the Philippines, the New People's Army, and the, and, and the government, and they seem to have come to that uh, kind, of, uh, kind of a truce, a uh, kind of a truce, where there are two well, Philippines, Red Philippines. and trouble, I think, and the man they've just elected in the Philippines, uh, I, I haven't really researched him, but I've seen allegations that he was in charge of repressive units that were some people have called death squads so they're they're not free of violence but there's nothing nothing like the violence that you had this huge frenzy it was it, it went i think beyond what anyone had originally imagined the 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 army certainly started the massacring but uh, it, 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 people went berserk, and there were, uh, of course, there were a lot of personal vendettas. If, if you owed money to somebody, the simple thing was to kill them, and so on. But yes, it was uh, the the result of colonialism uh, was was bad in both archipelagos, but uh, eventually much worse in Indonesia. You make the argument, or I, I draw the conclusion, that coming to Jakarta tells a story of how that action taken was trotted out as a successful trumping of communism and sold as an idea, perhaps, to underwrite the adventure of Vietnam. Yes, it happened at the same time as Vietnam, and uh, one of the analyses of why the Americans wanted to do it because they were very keen to have the army go in and take care of the Communist Party, but they knew that the army was frightened of China. And they wanted to put what they called a shield in Vietnam to keep it in, to interpose between China and Indonesia. And if you had a big U.S. presence in Vietnam, you didn't need to win a war, you just needed to be there. That's the key, I think, to all these wars, where these hopeless wars we keep on fighting. Afghanistan will never win that one. Uh, Iraq, we're back in. Uh, we're never going to win in any conventional sense. But the presence of U.S. troops 
is what matters, and in the case of Iraq, it means that the government of Kazakhstan is willing to make contracts with Chevron and Exxon and uh, not fear Russia because he's got Russian armies to the north, but now there's an American army to the south. So it's, um, it, it, it doesn't make what sense on one level, it does make sense on another level, and uh, it's imperialism. It looks like the business of war. I was, um, the poem is less, I mean, it, it, if you read my poem, it's not going to tell you an enormous amount about what happened in Indonesia, although it, it did some things, and I, I learned a lot writing the poem and researching that led to certain prose things I wrote, and uh, one of the consequences, which is kind of amusing, I, I actually got to debate William Colby, who the, was the, at that time the ex-head of the CIA, and before that head of the Asia desk, at the time of the massacre, so uh, it, uh, it, 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 it created minor waves among intellectuals and so on. Um, but most of the poem was just uh, the feeling of uh, which I think most people have, you know, this is an awful world and we would love to do something about it, but we can't, or we can't seem to get anything done. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of the personal and the political. You mentioned earlier that a, a book in progress is the writing of the, uh, a book about the writing of this trilogy. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, first of all, I, I did an article for something called uh, the Asia, uh, uh, Asia Political Journal, uh, in which I just talked about how writing the poem, well, no, I think I better begin somewhere else. Uh, I, I have a, a friend, a former student, but now a very good friend and helper and colleague, uh, co-author, who uh, loved the poem and uh, persuaded me two years ago to sit down and do some interviews uh, explaining the poem, because the poem really needs explanation. And so he interviewed me, there are a total of 22 interviews, each one about half an hour long, and uh, he has asked me matter-of-fact questions about what's happening in the poem, and that's the core of the book. And originally it was going to be the book, I was just going to get, transcribe those essays and write a few introductory words, uh, and that would be it. But, you know, interview, being interviewed by him, it took over a year. Um, I thought more and more about the poem, and I realized that the poem had really been very important to me in developing my own political ideas. I, I, I'm known for talking about deep politics, the politics that doesn't get mentioned, the, the locus of power in a zone that is so hidden that the, media, the, 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 the mainstream media never write about it. And I realized that I had uh, been empowered to develop those ideas by writing the poem. The poem helped my political thinking, particularly because there was one event. I recovered a memory in the when writing the poem. It comes at the very end of the poem. 
and you would have thought it was such a vivid event that it would be something you'd never forget, but I had totally repressed it. And this is what happened. Uh, there's somebody, a friend of mine called Al McCoy, wrote a book called The Politics of Heroin, and I was writing a book called The War Conspiracy at the same time. This is way back in 72, 1972. And uh, he came out here on his way to Indochina, and I phoned somebody that I had met at an anti-war uh, event a few months before. This man had said he was in special forces, and he had seen opium loaded onto CIA planes, Air America. So, and I had a contact for him, so I phoned him and I said, would you be willing to talk to my friend Al McCoy and myself? This was a late afternoon, and he said, sure. And he gave us his address in Palo Alto. And the next morning, Al and I drove down to Palo Alto, and we knocked on, we walked up a few steps to his door, banged on the door, and he came out with his fingers to his lips, indicating that we ought to speak. And this was kind of surprising because we had come to talk to him. And then he led us down the stairs, and then he began to talk. And he said, "Look at my look at my MG." And we looked at it. It was a convertible with a sealed door, and there was a hole in the door about a foot in diameter. And he said, and then he said, "Now look at the floor of my MG." And the floor was made of wood. And he said. They use an implosive device to bomb my car. That must have been my old unit. They're telling me I can't talk to you. Well, I had just witnessed a, a terrorist event, very, a small one, admittedly, but the use, the use of terror to intimidate and silence this guy we were going to talk to. And this was all on the basis of a phone call that I had had with him the night before. So you might think this is a pretty uh, unforgettable thing. In fact, is I forgot about it, and so did Al McCoy. And eventually, when Al McCoy uh, wrote the final edition of his major book, The Politics of Heroin, he mentions my account of it in the preface. He quotes from the poem, Coming to Jakarta, because that's how he recovered his memory, was through my sharing with him the poem. Well, you know, I think quite a lot of this goes on. We repress, if there are things that don't, why would I not remember something like that? I think it, it's just too, too scary. I think if there are things that, uh, that we don't want to think about, we repress them. And I think the job of poetry is to bring our consciousness back to those things that we don't want to face and uh, and also to lead a way out because um, if i hadn't found a way out by healing the poem i might not have recovered that memory it's significant to me it was the, i recovered a lot of memories in writing the poem but that is literally the very last one on the last page but one of the poem and uh, that's because it was the scariest of all in my relatively un unscary life so that's where I think that poetry is uh, 
can contribute to politics. And you were asking about the book I'm writing now. I wrote an essay about recovering that memory and how it led to my notion of deep politics. I published that, uh, I think, in 2011. And uh, then I realized that should go in this book. So the total title of my book is Poetry and Terror, the Poetics and Politics of Coming to Jakarta, because the, uh, the process the, uh, is, is as much political as is po poetical. So that's the core of the book, is those interviews, uh, a couple of introductions, a prose essay I wrote way back in the 1980s, informed by the research which I had done for the poem, and then this, you might say, the most original part is this, how poetry can lead to a, an informed, deeper sense of politics. That's the book. We speak of poetry as healing. It was a healing for yourself, and I believe bringing the focus to the reading audience, to pieces of history they might have heard about in passing. I mean, even Hollywood films, like uh, uh, that Mel Gibson film with um, uh, Lethal Weapon, made reference to running opium out of Vietnam and the silence that is enforced by those who are still doing it. When you see real accounts such as you give, it brings it out of the, uh, the, uh, the imagination and brings it into the real, uh, which then perhaps creates the uh, the uh, the attention of the of the group to, of the group focus to do some more research, and that's where the healing starts. Yeah, and actually, it even raises questions of what is real because uh, I don't think my belief is as human beings we're not really supposed to be living in the kind of system that we're living in now. <coughs> And that, uh, and that we're, I'm not talking about Indonesia now. I'm not talking about my own poetry. For since the beginning of time, I think that uh, the world has been an unsatisfactory world, and we are there's something in us, or certainly most of us, or some of us, that wants a better world. And poetry is our way of grasping for that other world. And that other world may not exist yet, but that doesn't mean for me that it's not real, maybe not even more real than this uh, insane world that we're living in now. And we're caught between two different kinds of worlds, and poetry is the vehicle to escape from this one to, to the other world and back. Um that there is an innate goodness in humans that is frustrated by our current civilization is referenced perhaps by you on page 25 as you uh, speak of the horrors of the Indonesian uh, civil war and you say, or you gentle reader, let us examine carefully the good reasons you and I don't enjoy reading this. Yeah, right, oh, you got the poem there, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was writing this out as a process. Uh, I didn't understand the reasons I didn't enjoy, and the poem continues to explore them and actually goes back into my childhood, and then I realize that I, too, was violent as a child, and I have to 
wonder why that is. I'm still wondering, by the way. <laughs> Even after the interview with my friend Freeman Ng, uh, he, uh, I, 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 I was a lot wiser about the evil in myself. But it's a, I believe, it's, there's no proof for this whatsoever, but I believe that the, it is, uh, we're most human when we're behaving in, in, in concert with other people and getting along with other people. And if, of course, uh, there are times when all of us don't, but I attribute that to the way that we are deformed by the frustrations of life. And some people, of course, have terrible lives and become terribly deformed. Um, now, you can't prove that, and I have friends, uh, I have one friend in particular who believes that, no, it's, uh, it's, it's equally human to be a saint or to be a sinner, that there, there isn't a preference in human nature for one over the other. I think there is a genetic tendency to become better than we are now, and that we're not, as a, as a species, uh, maybe we're, we haven't really reached the fullness of development when we will be better than we are now. You know, cannibalism used to be widespread. Now, it still occurs, but we usually regard it as uh, pretty dysfunctional if it happens. And, uh, and uh, Freud himself said that certain desires become repressed, and he pointed to cannibalism as being the, the one that has been most uh, widely uh, suppressed as, as a rule. So that's just a belief. And I think I, even if I didn't believe that, I think I still would write poetry, but I do believe it, and it's, my poetry is very connected to that belief. Peter, as we speak of poems and healing, um, so often you are, are uh, asked to trot out uh, the, um, the world on fire and the uh, reasons behind it. Would you share with us, sir, a poem of your own? Love that. A poem? Oh, my gosh. I should have been ready for that. Uh, I, I, I suppose I do a poem that's completely different, just to... Uh, uh, you know, I'm now 87. Uh, my, there are a lot of things I no longer do that I used to do. And if I can just find, yes, here's the book I want. Uh, this is a book called Tilting Point that came out in 2012. And part of it is political, but this particular poem is not. It's, uh, it's about what happens to me when I go out uh, for a walk in the morning and, excuse me just a second here, here it is. I go out for a walk in the morning and uh, a young jogger, female jogger, aged about 18 and very short shorts, uh, comes running towards me and brushes against me as she goes by. And for some weird reason, this uh, gets me interested. And I have written this poem. It's dedicated to Allegra. Allegra is all of these women. Uh, but you say it still happens. I, the odds are about one in three that it will happen any given morning. So I wrote this poem to Allegra. I walk towards you in the morning dark, and you come running. 
Did I discern a spark of recognition in your wayward glance of all we share in our too brief romance? Yes, for a moment you smile at me as if embarrassed by this brevity. Ironic that you, at maybe 17, should race so rapidly to the unseen, and I should haltingly, at 81, still mindful of so much I have not done, pace step by step as my sclerotic eye, obsessed with the vastness of what is nearby, Narcissi stiffening upwards by degrees, buds bursting open in the tulip trees, while simultaneously in a squall, hundreds of star magnolia petals fall. I is roused to a final furtive peak towards the scintillations of your silken shorts. And if I called out, sweetheart, not so fast, we need to make each precious moment last. It is too late. You have already passed. Enlightening my sweet confusion, is love no more than brief illusion? Or rather, a predetermined grace to enhance our inevitable race. Peter. It's maybe not the poem you expected, but <laughs> I, I, you caught me blindsided. I should have had a poem ready, and I didn't. Hey, there are plenty of political ones. You're Peter. You don't know this they tend to be too long, though. Peter, I don't know if you take uh, uh, requests, but I'm looking at your homing poem, a winter poem. It's, I, it seems to speak to some themes that have been in this interview. I wondered if you, you would read your, your, your opening title poem to Tilting Point. Oh, yeah, that's a, that, that's a much more serious poem, of course. I, I have to get to it. Homing, a winter poem. Uh, it's relevant. I should mention that I'm a Canadian, so I come from north of the border, and that the tundra swans, uh, in the winter, they come down to the delta. I go to, I go to see them every winter. It's, it's a sacred thing for me. And then in the summer, they fly up to northern Canada or even to Siberia. There, there, there are uh, swans and cranes that come here from Siberia every winter. And that is the occasion of the poem. Uh, and it's dedicated to Thomas Tranströmer, a Swedish poet who has a similar image in one of his poems. I'll skip the epigraph because it takes too long to explain. So here's the poem. Thank you for asking for that one. That's one of my favorite poems. So here we go. Tundra swans have come back from the frozen Arctic to the Delta marshes where I, far from home, drawn by a view of the open sea and by the ancient future in the fantastic gospels of Jubu and Nortona, have spent my years building structures for that dawn, each poem a conduit from our irreplaceable present to a glimpse of odyssey towards a promised land. Structures I at last perceive amid the remnant of a tribe who have lost faith in themselves, seeing their hands stained with blood, their factory doors closing, their songbirds silenced, were mostly made of sand in a tidal area. 
But even at my age, sensing the sad range of human folly, my habits are entrenched. We are what we have become. Still hoping to please my dead parents, I go on blindly building in the space created by wars as the tundra swans, inspired by the tilt of the earth, get ready to leave for the exact northern marshes where they were born. Well, Peter, thank you for being part of this irreplaceable presence at the Common Thread Collective. I sincerely hope you'll agree to come back and read more poetry in the future. Yeah. I'd love to. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Hey, Peter. Yo, Peter. This is me, Diamond Dave. And I just want to say to you, I felt you. I was right there. I'd be 78. <laughs> I'd be 78. Which of you had pulled out these poems? Who, who, who wanted to read, hear Tundra, the homing poem? That was James, but it took me right back to where, took me where I'm, just before I turned 78, Peter. Okay. I'm thinking I'm an old man now. No, you're a young man. I'm, I'm all over. I'm about to tell you. To, to take a deep breath. I'm about to tell you. Oh, I'm an old man now. It's all over. Almost 80. And you're over 80. It's all and Then I heard the voice of the Spirit. I believe you too. And here's what she said. I'm a Sufi. You heard the voice of the Spirit, and here's what she said. Learn to love, love to learn, never ends. Learn to love, love to learn, this never ends. Because that same situation, I'll be walking along a similar situation, and uh, I'll exchange glances, and it becomes more than a glance with some young woman as she's going by. She checks me out. I check her out. We have a moment of communication, as you were saying so yeah, well. well. They check you out. I'm not sure they're really checking me out. but not in the way they checked you <laughs> they, out, too. Uh, they're, they're polite. They, uh, I think they're... They, 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 if I, if I don't nudge them, they're not going to uh, be nasty to me. Richard, so Richard. Are, we, are we done now? Well, I'm about to have one more sentence, Peter. Yes? Uh, uh, Peter, uh, 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 acknowledge each other. I'm having trouble hearing you. Okay, acknowledging each other's existence. What I, I said, I learned to love, love to learn. That love will get you everywhere. Hate will get you nowhere. And that's where I am. And it does go. And it does go. And we connect to us. And we realize we're all on the planet together. Did we plan well, it? And here we are. You see, I think that's true. I talk this. I <laughs> we didn't get into this, but uh, Theodore Adorno talks about alterity. That all art has a vision of some other world and that's what makes it art and I add to that that there's an alternative there's, some of the art is true I mean some of the some of some art just creates fantasy some art creates truth I think what you just said is true to me as I said, I've been, uh, it's been 15 years since I had talked to you, and I was well, more than that, but I have my sobriety, I haven't had a drink in 15 years, so these things are opening up. And as a Sufi, I understand with the dervish. The dervish is about the, it's a lifelong process, the doorway, but the door, doorway between the two worlds, the world within and the world without. And that's what we're about weaving together. That's what art's about, that's what poetry's about, the spiritual path is about is this doorway, the doorway between the two worlds, the world within and the world without. Exactly. So, Peter, glad to be on the same page with you. Loving you, brother. We be doing what we're doing. It's called community and communication. Take it away, James. I was going to ask him if he's interested in why Rumi is in my book. 
my prose book. Well, I didn't know he was, but do you know that Rumi was not just a poet, but a dervish. And dervish is uh, is the Farsi word for doorway, doorway between the two worlds. Where is that? Or where is that in your? In a, do you have that in his prose book? Do you, do you know? Do you know where Rumi was born? I, 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 I know in Persia. Tell me more. I know he's in Afghanistan, and then he and his family were pushed all the way to Turkey when the uh, when he was the born in the city of Balk, B-A-L-K-H, in Afghanistan. One of the oldest cities in the world. Uh, when he was uh, 13 years old, the Mongols arrived, and because the city of Balk resisted, and I think they killed somebody in the the ruling family, the the Khans. They killed everybody in the city. They, they, the city was once supposed to be the largest city in the world. It was the, a major city on the Silk Road. And uh, the Mongols leveled it. 